Bibles, why don't you open up to the book of Acts, chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Tonight we're going to looking at verses 42 through 47, 42 through 47 as we continue in our study of the book of Acts. So um, before we get into that, I just want to ask a quick, quick question um, as we get started. What is the secret to growing a church? Now if you have the answer to that, you could probably write a book, or give a podcast, or give a seminar, because I can't tell you how many books and seminars and teachings there have been on the subject of growing the local church. I can't tell you how many I've personally read and how many sermons I've been through um, at conferences about growing the local church. And it's interesting um, what some of the People have had some ideas about this, have come up with, and it's, it's interesting because it's, it's changed over the years. Like it's, it's different from generation to generation what the, the big church growth idea might be. Now, there's been some really, really good things, but some of the ones that maybe weren't so good, I mean, not that they're bad, but like, like for instance, right? So, so there was a time where we went through these things like called the worship wars. Anybody remember the worship wars? Um, where churches were convinced that they would switch from hymns to contemporary worship, their church would grow. Um, there's also been discussion through the years about the style of preaching. There's been discussion, as, as crazy as this sounds, um, whether we need to switch from a traditional-looking church to a more contemporary church so we can draw people that are not used to going into a church type of a thing. Um, there's been churches that have done name changes. Some have been convinced that they need to do big events to attract outsiders. Then you have the seeker-sensitive model where essentially people gather together and have a good time and essentially learn very little to nothing about the Bible. Um, you know, there, there's these, these things that are out there everywhere, all these different models, but is church growth really just about some well-timed gimmick? Or is there a simpler answer, maybe a more biblical answer to that question? Well, today as we finish up Acts chapter 2, we are going to look at what I would just like to call the Lord's plan for church growth. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at here tonight. So let's go ahead and read our text, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing um, upon, our, upon his word here. So starting in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, it says this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles, signs, and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you again just for this opportunity we have to be here tonight. I am so thankful, God, for this church I'm so thankful, God, for just each one of my brothers and sisters in Christ here, Lord, that, that just have, have committed themselves to, to you, Lord, into this place and to seeing this church grow and prosper. And, and tonight, Lord, we, we want to learn from you. 
God, I'm thankful for this book that we hold in hands in our, in our hands called Your Holy Word, our Bible. God, our instruction book for life. God, I just pray that You would teach us tonight, that You would show us exactly what it is that You have for us. Lord, You know every heart here, every mind here. You know every situation, every single person is going through here. And whatever they're dealing with tonight, God, I pray You would speak to them right where they're at. And Lord, I just pray that we would leave this place changed. Father, above all, be glorified in everything that is done and said here in this place. Let this message honor You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So um, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at this day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit um, fell on the apostles. So after Jesus descended, 10 days passed, these were, they were gathered together, um, where again, nobody's really certain, but more than likely, probably in the temple area, because of what we'll, we, we kind of see next. But anyways, they were gathered together, the, whole, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin speaking in tongues. They begin speaking, literally it says, other languages. Um, if you remember, this was the time where there were feast days. Um, one of the feast days, there were thousands of, of Jews from all over the Roman Empire, and Northern Africa, and, and Asia Minor, they all kind of gathered together there in in Jerusalem, and so when, when the Holy Spirit fell on these Christians, they began to speak the wondrous things of God, as Scripture says, and these people heard it in their own language, and they were just like, what is this? They, they came and they gathered around these people, and there were kind of two different reactions to this. One, were, one group was very, very interested in this and genuinely wanted to know what this was, while another group was pretty much like, this is just a bunch of drunk, drunken gibberish, they're, they're drunk on wine, pay no attention to them. And, and so to this, the Apostle Peter stands up amongst the people there, and he begins to explain to them what they had just experienced and heard and seen. And he had told them that what they had seen was spoken of by the prophet Joel, literally centuries before this. And I'm not going to go into everything we talked about that, but really what it seems is that Pentecost was a, a, a marker in time. It was essentially Peter was saying, look, because you have seen this, you can know that the prophets, what they said were absolutely true. And what Joel said would happen when this happens the rest of Joel's true too, meaning the coming of the Lord, the restoration of Israel, God's wrath coming down and taking care of the evil in this world. And, but, but, but Peter told him there in verse 21 that not everybody has to go through that wrath of God. Not everybody has to experience that wrath of God because if you would just simply call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. Well, then last week, we really just looked at and discussed um, Peter's sermon that he went on from that point to be able to, to, to describe to these people that the, the name of the Lord that they were supposed to call on was actually Jesus himself. Yes, the very same Jesus that they had rejected and crucified, the very same Jesus that was their Messiah and Lord. Now, the good news was, as Peter told them, that although Jesus was crucified, although he was murdered essentially, he didn't stay dead. He, he rose from the grave, alive and well, and is now exalted to the highest place in heaven, seated at the right hand of his heavenly Father. God, right? And then he went on to tell them that there was going to be a day that Jesus is going to come back again. And he used the prophecy from King David that, that talked about Jesus coming back and, and putting his enemies underneath his feet, using them as like a footstool type of a thing. And to this reality hit these people. And they, they finally understood that this Jesus that they had just crucified and put at a cross and killed it was their Messiah. The, the long-awaited one, the one they had been waiting for centuries for, they murdered him. They killed the Son of God, and when this reality hit, they pleaded with Peter, 
Like, how do we escape this judgment? What do we do, Peter? And so Peter went on to tell them they needed to repent. Literally, they needed to change their mind about who Jesus was, and instead of rejecting him as a fraud, they needed to accept him and receive him as their Lord and Savior. But, but he also went on from there. And, and he didn't tell them to recite some cliche prayer. He, he told them they needed to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Meaning, if they wanted to receive God's mercy, if they wanted to be saved, if they wanted to escape the judgment of God, they needed to identify themselves with Jesus as his. And again, if if they were in fact in this temple area, what Peter was saying was this, if you want to be saved, identify with Jesus in front of the Pharisees, in front of the chief priests, in front of all these other people that were just crying crucify him a few weeks ago. If you're serious about this, if you want to escape God's wrath, identify with him now. Repent of your sins and come be baptized in the name of Jesus. Whoo, that'd be a hard thing to do in front of all them people, wouldn't it? And yet, it says that 3,000 people, 3,000 in that moment boldly stepped forward and had their, name, had their names added to the family of God that day. Can you imagine what that would have been like? That would have been absolutely incredible to see. Well, the question is then, now what? Like, what did these people do then? Did they all just, like, go back to their homes like nothing had changed? Oh, no. What we see next to them is these people were absolutely transformed. Their, their priorities changed, their perspective changed, everything changed. We see in verse 32 that they all devoted themselves to, to four things. They, they committed themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to eating meals together, and really I think the emphasis here really is the Lord's Supper or communion, um, and prayer. And we're going to get to them four things in a moment, but, but I really want to just hit for a minute before we get into those four things, just this, this phrase that they devoted themselves. Now, when these people came to Jesus, they literally came in with both hands and both feet. This wasn't like, um, these weren't like fence-riding Christians. They weren't like wishy-washy, back-and-forth Christians. These people were fully devoted, fully committed followers of Jesus Christ from the point they gave their hearts to him. And I just, I just wonder, like, how much of that commitment had to do with the way Peter told them to be saved. And here's what I mean by this. I mentioned last week, and I'm not here to just down everything that's going on in America, but I mentioned last week that the American church in a lot of ways has really, really watered down what a biblical response to the gospel actually is. Now, the gospel itself is simple. I mean, the gospel is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth, went to a cross, died for our sins, was buried, and three days later rose again, making salvation possible for us. I mean, that, that's the gospel. The, the gospel is, is very, very simple. So the question is, is, what does somebody have to do to be saved? Like, do they need to know all the deep doctrines of Scripture before they can truly come to faith in Jesus? No, all they need to know is a simple gospel. That Jesus came, they died for their sins. He was buried, and he rose again, victoriously defeated, and opened the door. All they had to do is believe that, right? And they need to believe that. But, but is it good enough just to believe? Is that really the call of the gospel, to just believe those things are true, and that's it? 
Well, no. I mean, there's clearly more than that. James chapter 2 and verse 19, 19 tells us this. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in terror. So, so it's clearly not good enough just to simply believe that Jesus was real, that he went to a cross and died and rose. The simple belief in that, that, yeah, that was probably true, clearly doesn't save somebody. Well, what about this? What if somebody says, well, yes, I want Jesus to be my Savior, but I I really don't want to give my old life up. You know, I I really don't want to give up my sins. I really don't want to give up those things in my past. Yes, I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I want Jesus, but I don't want to give up my sins. Can they do that? Does it work that way? No. See, Peter said what Jesus said. Repent. Literally, change your mind. Change your direction. Paul said the same thing. Now, again, I'm not saying at all that that people are required somehow to, to clean themselves up before they come to Jesus. Friends, we don't have the ability to clean ourselves up before Christ. We don't have the strength to do that. No, no. We, we need to bring everything to him. All of our junk, all of our sins, all of our closet things that nobody else knows, we need to bring those things to the cross of Christ, but we have to leave them there. We, we don't bring those things with us. See, true salvation comes when we repent and, and, and respond to that belief in faith. Believe and respond in faith to the simple message of the gospel by choosing to walk away from our former life and instead choosing to follow Jesus as our new master and Lord and Savior. Friends, that's salvation. You'd be like, are you sure? Yeah, absolutely. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, there's an action. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Savior, oh no, that Jesus is Lord. That he's king of my life. He's my new master. If you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. See, that's when I believe salvation comes. And what I also believe is that when somebody does that, when somebody comes to faith in Christ truly, what follows is change in their life. And, and that's why I'm so certain these people were truly saved, because it's exactly what we see. We see evidence of their salvation, and the evidence of their salvation was the fact that they devoted themselves to these things, like their lives were transformed. See, I, I do not believe a person can come to faith in Jesus Christ and stay the same as they were. I believe that's absolutely impossible. Again, I don't think people just you snap your finger and you get saved and, and like you're instantly perfect. Like you instantly don't have any baggage or you instantly don't have any issues. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, but there has to be a change of direction, a change of heart, a change of desire. A, a true Christian will have a desire to learn more about what God wants from them. A true Christian's priorities will begin to change and they'll begin to see the world from a different perspective. And again, not everybody changed at the same rate. I think God moves people, obviously, at different rates of speed. But the point is, is a person that comes to faith in Christ can't help but be changed. God's Word says so. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, He, being God, who began the good work in us, will be the one who will complete the good work in us. 
God will not leave us where we are at if we belong to him. There must be change in us. God's word says so. And that's why I'm so convinced that these people here were truly saved. Now, as we've gotten done with that devoted part, let's hop into what they devoted themselves to. The first thing here they devoted themselves to is the apostles' teaching. Now, the question would be is what was the apostles' teaching? Well, I don't think we really have to guess. It was what Jesus had taught them. Like, I'm sure they talked about who Jesus was. I'm sure they told these people about the miracles of Jesus. I'm sure they, they, they taught these people the teachings of Jesus that Jesus had taught them. I'm sure, based on what we've already seen in Peter here in Acts chapter 2, that they went back to the Old Testament, which was all that they had at this particular point in history. They didn't have our New Testament. They were the ones that were going to be writing it eventually, right? Now, but so they, I'm sure he took them to the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies and, and showed them Jesus and all these different, just like Jesus did them. Remember in the road to Emmaus, he, Jesus took and he talked about all the Old Testament prophecies, how these things pointed to him. I'm sure this is what the apostles' teachings were. Now, it's interesting, in, in one of Peter's own letters, again, this was later on in his life, but he said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, this is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory, and I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. So he, he taught them what Jesus taught them, and he taught them Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, that's really what I believe the apostles' teaching was all about. So we don't really have to guess. All we got to do is look at Peter's letters in the New Testament. He'll tell us exactly what the apostles' teaching was, because it's what he taught. Like, for instance, in, um, just for a, a few headings from First and Second Peter, the two books that he wrote later in his life, he talked about our hope of eternal life through Jesus, and he, he declares the gospel. He, told, he, he talked about the call to holy living. He talked about the um, what, how, how Christians are to conduct themselves in society. He talked about how Christian families are to operate. He, he talked about us being the, the, the dwelling place of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. He, he taught how Christians were supposed to be unified together, of one mind and one purpose. He taught about Christian suffering that it was something that we should expect to endure as Christians. He taught about the dangers of false teachers. He talked about people not falling prey to false doctrine. He talked about the coming day of the Lord when God's judgment was going to be poured out. That was the apostles' teaching. Now, does that sound at all familiar about like what we see Jesus teach throughout the Gospels? Jesus taught about almost all of those things in the Gospels. So they were simply passing on to these people what they themselves had been taught by Jesus. If you want to know what discipleship is in its simplest form, that's it. Just teach somebody else what's been taught to you. Pass on the, the things that have been passed on to you by somebody else. These people had a hunger to learn more about their Lord. And as we think about that as Christians, if this is something we should devote ourselves to, the apostles' teaching, right? God's Word. Do we have that same hunger? Do we have the same desire to be in the Word of God, to learn more and more and more about our Lord? Psalm 119 and verse 103 says, How sweet your words taste to me, sweeter than honey. Do you desire God's Word like that? Like maybe honey's not your thing. Do you desire God's Word like a big greasy piece of pizza? Maybe a big bowl of ice cream. 
If you're one of them health nuts, maybe a quinoa salad and some kale. I don't know. Whatever that looks like, right? But, but do you desire God's Word? Do you hunger and thirst for it, as Scripture says? These people did. They devoted themselves to that, and they also devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, the, the word for fellowship here is an ancient word called koinonia, which is kind of the idea of communion, of participation, the idea to share in something together. So these people, with these people, this was more, this relationship they had was more than like just a simple acquaintance, right? This was more than people showing up for an hour or two once a week and, and waving hi when they come in door and waving bye when they walk out. Like, that's not what they were talking about here when they were talking about fellowship. This was a much deeper relationship that they had. This word koinonia is the idea, really, of, of oneness. That, that they were one together, like of one mind, of one purpose, connected together by one Savior, one baptism, filled with one Holy Spirit, belonging to one Heavenly Father. Like That's the kind of the idea here. The idea is that they, they had a deep connection to one another that went way beyond the superficial. They were literally acting as the one body of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John talked about this later on in his life when he wrote 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship. Same word, koinonia, with us. And our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So that this fellowship they had was, man, they were connected to God and they were connected to one another. And it was way more than superficial. It was like an intimate fellowship, an intimate relationship, a, a, a deep, deep friendship that they had together. You know, I can tell you with just full confidence in the Scriptures that God wants both of these things for us. Like God wants a personal, intimate relationship with us, and He wants us to have that together as Christians too. We need God. But can I tell you something? We need one another. You know, in my own personal life, I, I can just tell you, I'm just going to be frank with you, there's times that I need encouragement. Like there's times that I need to be built up. There's times where I need somebody to speak some hard truths into my life. There's times where I need somebody to speak God's Word into my life. People to, to keep me in check. People to call me out if they see sin in my life somewhere. Like I will tell you that I am an introvert at the core of my life. And yet I, I desperately need godly people in my life. And so do you. Whether you think so or not, so do you. You need Christians in your life. Because we all, know, we all need those things, don't we? Like if we're honest, we all need encouragement. We all need to be built up. If you don't have Christians speaking in your life, What's the alternative? The world? W which voice is going to help us? Certainly not the world's. We need Christians' voices being spoken into our lives. We need one another. We need that type of koinonia of fellowship. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, as most of your translations say. And now, they certainly had meals together, and we kind of see this later on here in a couple verses down. And, and isn't that like the great part of fellowship? Like I, I think that like, the, the idea of church potluck started right here. <laughs> uh, like the food part of fellowship is one of my favorites. I really, really, really like it. But, but I, I really, really believe the emphasis here is on the Lord's Supper. Like literally on, on, the, on the communion table that we, that we celebrate here um, once a month. Now, it, it's the idea where they, they shared together in the unleavened bread and the wine to remember the body and blood of Christ. 
Now, why did they do this daily? Because it says they, they, they devoted themselves to these things, and, and daily they did these things later on, right? Now, why? Like, was it some sort of command that we missed somewhere that, that we were supposed to take part in the Lord's Supper every single day? No. I mean, Jesus never says this anywhere in Scripture that we're supposed to do this every single day, but the fact that these people did it should tell us something about them. And here's what I think it is. Again, this is just my, my thoughts on this, but this is what I think it is. I don't, I don't believe they ever again wanted to lose sight of what God their Savior had done for them. Like, for, for what they were guilty of, they were fully aware that they deserved God's judgment. They killed a son. And yet, instead of being judged by God, they, they received the greatest gift of grace ever given to mankind. They received the salvation of their souls. And they wanted to keep this on the forefront of their minds continually. I'm convinced that's why they did it daily. To remind themselves every single day that I deserve judgment, and yet by the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, I've been saved. Every day they wanted to remember that. Now, I'm not advocating that we should take communion every single day, but a question we should ask ourselves in relation to this is this. Do we appreciate our salvation as much as those people appreciated their salvation. Now again, it makes total sense to me why these people were so passionate about keeping God's grace at the forefront of their minds. I mean, they had, they had literally murdered the Son of God and their Messiah. And the fact that God gave them salvation in spite of it, I'm sure moved them in an incredible way. But, but should we be any less moved? I mean, as we think about what we've been forgiven of as people, should we be any less moved by the grace of God? Like, make no mistake, we may not have been physically there in the crowd crying, crucify Jesus, but can I tell you something? My sin put them there as much as theirs did. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, what's it tell us? All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us are the reason Jesus went to the cross. You know what else the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3? Because of that sin, we were all by our very nature children of wrath. Meaning people that the wrath of God was bearing down upon. And yet, if you read on in Ephesians, for those of us that know Jesus the Savior, in verses 4 through 9 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that we have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. Friends, never, ever, ever let us take that for granted. Let us never forget it. Let us never lose just inside of us how wonderful and amazing that truth is that we have been saved from the pit of hell by the grace of God. And it's not only that we've been saved from hell, we've been given an incredible future and a hope. See, see Peter went on in, in, in one of his letters in 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5, and it talks about this eternal hope that we've been given. And he describes it like this as a priceless inheritance. 
an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed to on the last day for all to see. That's what we have to look forward to as God's people. We're going to be with him and reign with him forever and ever and ever. Because we deserved it? No, it's by grace we have been saved. Not of works. Not because of anything that we have done. It's all because of his goodness and his mercy and his grace. Friends, we should never, ever, ever lose sight of how amazing that truth is. These people certainly didn't. So they, they broke bread, they fellowshiped, they were in apostles' teaching and in prayer. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be praying together amongst 3,000 people? I mean, you talk about the most awesome prayer time in the world to be praying like that with that many Christians. You know, the fact that they devoted themselves to prayer tells me that, like, this wasn't some cliche prayer over dinner, like, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, right? I mean, it, it was more than just, thank you, Lord, for my food, let's eat. No, 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 it, it was way more than that. The, the fact that they devoted themselves to prayer means this was a part of their lives now. And they more than likely, I'm sure, prayed individually and prayed corporately. And the fact of it is, is both of these as Christians are absolutely vital. Like we need a personal prayer life with God where we get along with him. Why? Because God wants a personal relationship with us. He doesn't see us as just some number in a crowd. He sees us and knows us for who we are. He sees us as the individuals that we are. He wants a personal, intimate relationship with every single one of his children. So we need to have an intimate prayer time with him every single day where we just talk, us and him. But we also need to pray together as a church. You know, coming together corporately as a church and, and praying God for, for him to move in our church, to give us boldness in our faith, to, to meet our needs, to give us wisdom, to, to protect us from Satan's attacks. Don't you think we need that? I mean, Paul asked for the church to pray for those things for him. I mean, if he did, if he needed it, I can tell you I do. We need to pray for one another. As Jesus said in Matthew 8, chapter 18 and verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them, right? There's power as the church comes together in prayer. And I would say this is we need to pray for one another even as, as people. If we have needs, we need to be talking to our Christian brothers and sisters and say, will you pray for me? Listen to James chapter 5 and verse 16. Powerful verse. He says, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Like if we're walking in holiness and righteousness and we're right before God, there is power in prayer. So if you have needs in your life, if you have infirmities in your life, whatever that is, you need to be praying together with Christians because God will move. The Bible tells us so. Now, they devoted themselves to these four things. What do you think would happen if we all did the same thing? Like, what if we were that serious about digging deep into God's Word? What, what if we were that devoted to fellowshipping, that type of intimate fellowship with one another? Like, what, what if we were that moved by the grace of God that we've been given in Christ. Like we're every single day, we're just like, thank you, Jesus. What if every day we were devoted to, to deep prayer, seeking the throne of God, meeting together? For, what would happen? 
well, we can see what happened with these people. I want to talk about the result of them being devoted. Let's look at verse 43. The first thing he says here is a, a deep sense of awe came over them all. Literally, that means a reverent fear came over these people. Now, I want you to go back, look up in your Bibles, back to verse 37 we talked about last week. And I want to read this again. Verse 37, this was before their salvation, right? Before they, their conversion where they got saved. It says, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to the other apostles, Brothers, what, would, what, must, be, what must we do? Like, there was a terror in that verse. Like, they were absolutely terrified of this reality that they had just killed the Son of God, and they were like, how do we escape God's wrath? That's something different than what we see here in verse 43, that a a deep fear came over these people. See, I can tell you this, God doesn't want us to be scared of him. He wants us to have a healthy fear of him. But I don't believe God wants us to be scared of him. And here's what I mean by this. If you're scared of something, you will do anything you can to avoid whatever that something is. Like for me, it's stinking snakes. Anybody like snakes? I hate snakes. They scare me to death. I will scream if I see one slithering. Like, Big man screaming, I'm a stupid little snake. That's me. I admit it fully. I hate them. But can I tell you something? There's a big difference between being scared of something and having reverential fear. And here's what I mean by this. As a dad, I have kids, right? I have three kids. It is good for my kids to have a healthy fear of dad. Like, my boys know if they clocked their mother, I would put their head through the wall. You know what I'm saying, dads? They have a healthy fear of dad. But can I tell you something? It would break my heart in half if my kids feared me. And I mean that. You know, my kids are 15, 16, and 18. And can I tell you the greatest thing in the world? The greatest thing in the world is my kids still come up and give me a big old hug. I can't tell you how much I love the fact that my kids aren't embarrassed to come hug dad. But you know what that also tells me? My kids don't fear me. My kids know that although they need to have a healthy fear of consequences for sin and consequences for doing dumb things, they know their father loves them and would do anything for them. Like, I want my kids to know that I'd give my life for them in a second, and I would. See, there's a place for healthy fear in our relationship with God, and we had better have it. Like, if if we have no fear of sinning in our lives of just sinning rampantly without caring at all. Oh, that's a bad, bad spot to be. But can I tell you something? God doesn't want you to be scared of him. God wants you to fear him enough that you will reject sin because of the consequences, but he wants you to revere him enough that you will run to his open arms. 
where Scripture says, come boldly to the throne of grace, where you'll find grace and help in your time of need. That's the, what God wants from us. Not to be fearful of him, not to be scared of him, but that we would come to him as our Abba Father. That's the relationship that God wants with this, and that's, I believe, what, these, what this is saying right here. So a deep sense of fear came over them, and then also they saw here that the apostles performed miracles and signs and wonders. These people were seeking God, and God answered with incredible proofs of his authority and power. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into this for the sake of time, but let's, let's never, ever, ever underestimate the power of Almighty God. Like, I firmly believe, I firmly believe that our God in heaven is still as powerful as he was when this happened in the first century, don't you? I hope you do. Because my Bible says in Malachi 3 and verse 6, for I am the Lord and I do not change. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why would we ever think that the power of God has been diminished? Oh, heavens no. Can I tell you something, and I believe this truly, if if our church would seek God like these people were seeking God, I believe we would see the power of God move in this church like you wouldn't believe possible. I believe that with all of my heart. We would see incredible, incredible works of God. If we as a church, as a whole, sought God like that, we would see God move in miraculous, incredible ways. People's lives would be absolutely transformed through the ministry of this church if that was taking place. Now, verses 44 and 45 says all the believers were, they met together at one place, shared everything they had, sold their property, possessions, shared money with those in need. Now, just a contextual point here because it's important to understand. Remember that these thousands of people that had gotten saved, probably a great majority of them weren't from Jerusalem. They were from other countries that had come in for these feast days, so like they didn't have a job, they didn't have places to stay right? But they wanted to stay there, and they wanted to learn from the apostles and and be together as Christians. And so what happened? These people, because they had fellowship with one another, because they loved God, because they were devoted to one another, they wanted to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if it meant selling their own possessions and giving the prophets a way to make it happen, they did it. Why? Because these people weren't just acquaintances. They were family. It had changed. Further evidence we see of this is in the last couple of verses here in 46 and 47. It says they worshiped together at the temple each day. Not just on Sunday, each day. They met at home for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals together with um, great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Would you note that they didn't need a law? They didn't need a command they didn't need Peter to, to give them a lesson and, and tell them they needed to sell their stuff and to give and to encourage one another and to pray and to provide, to worship together. They, they didn't need a command, no. They just, they just did it. Because God had changed their lives. Like they were so moved by the grace of God that they willingly sacrificed their time and their resources for God and his people. And they did it all, as the scriptures say here, with joy and gladness in their heart. Why? Because as Jesus said it best in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Their treasure is, was Jesus. 
He was the greatest treasure in their life, and because he was the greatest treasure in their life, so was his church, and so was his people. It was the natural outflow of their devotion that these things took place. You know, I'm going to close here, uh, and I'm going to here shortly. <laughs> um, when I was thinking about the, going into the new year trying to figure out what I was going to start preaching on, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't going to do the whole book of Acts. Like, my, my focus was just on our passage for today. And I was going to spend like five, six, seven weeks talking about like right doctrine and and fellowship, and um, prayer, and the Lord's Supper, and giving, and, and what that looks like, and, and you know, discipleship. I was going to talk about each one of those things, but I didn't. I wanted to go through the whole book of Acts, and like literally up to like Monday, I was, we were going to be in this book for like the next six weeks. Like in, the next, like in this, this passage of Scripture, for like the next six weeks, I was going to spend a week talking about all those things, but, but we're not going to do that, at least right now. Why? Because of this. You know, it's certainly not that we couldn't spend multiple messages on the different doctrines of Scripture. We could do that real easy. Like, we could spend literally weeks on this. Like, we could, we could easily have messages on the importance of Christian fellowship and the need to be connected together as Christians and all the benefits there are that come from that fellowship. We could literally spend entire messages on um, the, the ins and the outs of the Lord's Supper and what it means. We could have a whole message series on prayer. Like we can talk for a long time on prayer about what is prayer and the need for prayer and the power of prayer and all those different things. And boy, can we talk about biblical giving. Like we can talk about the, the principle of tithing where we give literally the first tenth, our, our first fruits to God's kingdom. And by the way, that wasn't just part of the law that preceded the law. Like years before the law, this is the principle we see with Abraham where he gave the best, the first tenth of everything that he had from God. In our context, guess that, that means before taxes, before house bills, before groceries, before all that, we give it to God, right? We could talk about that. We could talk about how we're supposed to even give beyond that with offerings, wherever God would lead. We could talk about that stuff for multiple weeks. But you know what the reality is? Is of a Christian was as devoted to those four simple things as these people were, every single one of those things would just fall into line. They'd just happen. Because all those things they're talking they're a natural outflow of being devoted to Christ like that. Like if people, if people treasured Jesus like these people treasured Jesus, it would change everything. Can I say something? If we as a church would treasure Jesus the way they treasured Jesus, we would impact our communities like you wouldn't believe. There will be lives changed, people changed, marriages fixed. You know, one of my... Big desires of the church is to, to do what these people were doing where they were meeting in homes. Where Christians just stand up and say, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I wanna lead a, a home group. I want people over at my house. We're just gonna get into God's word together. I hope that happens here someday. It's a great thing. Can I tell you something? Our Wednesday night Bible study, although small, 
I get way more out of that than I do being here on Saturday night. I, lo- I love both. But there's something about being together with Christians in a small group. It's just, a, it's a different thing. Like you, you connect with each other on a completely different level than, than you would here just with some guy preaching at you. It's so, so different. But you know what else would change? The last verse, part of verse 47. If, if we would commit to those things, I believe the same thing could happen here. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. See, devotion to Christ like that, the natural outflow of that is that people can't hold that message of Jesus in because they're too excited. He's changed them too much. He's done, he's done too much in their lives to hold that in and, and they're out telling people about what Jesus did in my life. People are getting saved. The church is growing and I'm convinced, friends, that that's still God's plan to grow the church today. Let's devote ourselves to this book. Let's devote ourselves to Christian fellowship. Let's remember, remind, I don't care if you have to put a postcard in the fridge, remind yourself every day that God's grace has reached me through Christ. Pray and seek Him. And if we will do that, I can tell you that God will move in incredible ways and it'll get exciting around here. Guaranteed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and so much, God, for this time we have together as your people. Father God, I am so thankful that you have called me to this church to have a group of people that that love you like they do. But God, the truth of it is, even in my own life, God, I have room to grow. I have not arrived to where I need to be in my walk with you. I still have areas of my life, God, that I am not as devoted to you as I should be. Lord, and I, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I think I probably can if we were all honest, Lord. Heavenly Father, whatever it is that we need to grow in in our lives, will you just reveal that to us right now in this moment? Whatever it is, God, whatever area of our life that we're not quite there yet, God, will you show us that? Will you give us the grace and strength to commit to, to get better at it? And by your grace and by your strength, Father, I know that you will get us there. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody in this place that has never, has never even begun a relationship with you, God, they've never even made the decision to follow Christ. Lord, your, your word makes it clear. We've talked about the gospel. Jesus came. He did the work. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead and is alive today. But God, the call to respond to that, Lord, is, Lord, we have to change our minds can't keep going my way. I've got I to gotta start following Jesus. And I, I just pray, Lord, if, if anybody is in that place today where they don't know you as Savior, God, that they would just simply call out to you and just say, Jesus, I am, I'm a sinner. And I need you. I, I need salvation. And that they would just say, Jesus, come into my life. Save me. Give me the grace and the ability to be able to serve you and to follow you, to, to be able to put my sins behind me and to, to live for you. God, will you Will you be my Savior? Will you be my Lord and will you save me? God, I am convinced, Lord, that if, if they will simply call upon your name, as your word says, they will be saved. 
God, let them choose to do that tonight, Father. We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in Christ. And this is his name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me close tonight. We are going to stand together.